shared God's word with us. Father, we thank you for Tim. Um, Lord, we thank you for his leadership um, and for his love for you and us as a body of people. And Holy Spirit, as he opens the scriptures to us now, would you um, enlighten our hearts and minds and fill him to the fullness of um, all of your joy as he shares with us now. Amen. Amen. Oh. There we go. Good evening. Nice to see you. Uh, 466, if you're in the Green Bibles. Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. Uh, we're thinking about, really timely with what Barney was sharing and others as well, we're thinking about how um, you formulate vision, how you incubate vision. How did Nehemiah uh, grow this sense of call to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, May I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple, and for the city wall, and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I saw a slide uh, on a sort of youth event that I was at a long, long time ago, uh, and it, it's—I don't—I can't—I don't know. I don't think I ever know who, who this quote is attributable to, but it simply said, "Unless you see it before you see it, you'll never see it." 
Uh, it was within the context of, of kind of vision and, um, you know, working towards a, 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 something with young people. You know, it was in the context of potential and growing stuff and developing stuff. Unless you see it, before you see it, you'll never see it. I, I, and those of us who, who kind of just listened to, to Barney about, uh, I love that, about the vision he's worked in the health service. And he sees, as it were, the, the walls of communication between doctors and nurses and healthcare kind of broken down. And he, there, there must be a better way. Could we use the tech platforms? Could we know the technology that we've got? Is there a way in which we can make this work? And so he sees that it currently is, and he sees what could be. But it's the seeing what could be, I imagine, that, that fuels Barney when, he, when another thing doesn't work, or the tech lets him down, or goodness knows how many setbacks, how much inertia, how many, as you walk into the wind, so it kind of, you know, pushes back. Unless you, unless you see it before you see it, you'll never see it. There are too, there's too much distraction, too much stuff in the here and now, too many things going on. It's like wading through treacle to make advance, to create something new. It, it needs energy and capacity. Unless you see it, before you see it, you'll never see it. Nehemiah. We've, uh, we've got this wonderful timeline here, created by our tech wizard that is uh, Lydia. <laughs> Well, hey, at least he's producer. I think he's far way better than me. Uh, and just if you weren't here last week, we're kind of just putting Nehemiah in, into the kind of the, the narrative of the biblical context, um, creation, and uh, God to Abraham. You know, take a people. Uh, your 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 descendants will be more numerous than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky, and uh, through Moses, yes, it's into the promised land. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, to be a light for the surrounding nations. God, God didn't place his people on an island. He put them right in the middle of a, all the other nations to, to, to shine with their king in place. Saul and then David, uh, Solomon, others. But uh, the kind of, the, the history of uh, Chronicles 1 and 2, Kings 1 and 2, is that um, uh, you know, it just increasingly the, the idols of other nations or the ways of other nations way more appealing and so they kind of gradually in a downward, downward spiral that takes them further and further away from God and so eventually God allows the Babylonians to rise up one of these uh, 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 sort of neighbouring nations to uh, overrun Judah, southern part of the kingdom and to sack the city of Jerusalem, to destroy the temple and uh, to sack the walls and uh, some of the leading People of the time are taken off into captivity. And it's around about that uh, era, around about sort of late 500s, 400s BC that we're talking about. Um, the book of, um, just one or two little technical bits around, around Nehemiah. Um, uh, in the first few centuries of, of the kind of, 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 uh, sort of Christians holding scripture, they had uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as together. In fact, Nehemiah was often referred to as, as second Ezra. Uh, and it's, it helps, I think, if you, you read them together. When the s- scholars get into the dating, it, it's, it's quite hard to, to get the dates and the figures exactly corresponded between Ezra and Nehemiah. So there's, there's debate about, for example, chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, when exactly was that? Uh, and there's a little bit of disagreement, but not as far as I'm concerned. That makes any difference to the, the kind of message of God's heart for his people through Ezra and Nehemiah. 
So it's around about that time that God is causing, calling Ezra to go and rebuild the temple and Nehemiah to go and rebuild the city walls. We, we heard last week that, that Nehemiah has heard a report of the walls uh, broken down, the, the city's been destroyed by fire. And he, he just falls on his knees and he weeps this, this prayer of confession in, uh, in chapter one. Oh God, how has it come to this? He sees what it currently is, and he says to himself, what could be? What are you calling me, Lord, to, to do? Unless you see it, before you see it, you'll never see it. Just, just look at, um, it's going to start the, the, the passage the week after next, after Esther and IJM next week. In verse 11, I went to Jerusalem. So, so he hasn't even, up until now, he hasn't even got to the city. He's gone on report, and he's, he's been before the Lord. So he hasn't seen the actual state of Jerusalem. But unless you, you see what you're aiming for before you see it, you, you'll never see it. You, you'll look at the ruins and say, oh my goodness, this, this is too big a job. This is hopeless. But unless you see it before you see it, you'll never see it. So the king says to Nehemiah, chapter 2, Verse 2, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart, perceptive from the king. Um, this bit about the date, some commentators argue that Nissan is the start of the new year. So they're in a new year festival, everyone's happy. The context is celebration. And here is Nehemiah and his face is sad. So much so that the king says, well, no, you're not off colour, it's not sort of, you know, Whatever, a bit of a cold or a little fluey. I, I can tell it's more than that. There's something that is really... It, King is effectively saying, what's really wrong? What's really up? What is it, Nehemiah? And you know what it is? He's been carrying this burden for Jerusalem and for the city walls in particular. He's been carrying this for months. Let's just, just go back to... Um, Chapter 1, which uh, Lydia unpacked for us brilliantly last week. Do you see uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, um, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of, uh, of the reign of Artaxerxes, uh, the month of Kislev is thought to be November, and Nisan is thought to be April. So between chapter 1 and chapter 2, about four or five months. But look what he prayed in chapter 1. Verse 11 of chapter 1. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man, the king. Give your servant success today. Lord, I've heard of this. This is awful. We've got to do something about it. I can, I can see what we need to do. I, I'm, I'm formulating a vision for what Jerusalem, what it used to look like and what it could look like once we repair it. So grant me favour in the presence of this man today, in November. And in the month of Nisan, April. He still, hasn't, he still hasn't kind of said anything to the king. He still hasn't kind of brought it to him. And yet it's been boiling away. It's been bubbling away. This, this hurt, this, this burden, this desire to see his city, God's city, restored to the glory of God's name. 
I wonder, I mean, I've got a number of questions. I'd love to chat to Barney and others. I wonder how, how long it, this, this thing, that, uh, this, this new vision, this new uh, kind of, what's it called? Pondo? Forward. Forward at the moment, sorry, forward, but then, yeah, we've got a little fight in the course, and then uh, something else. Forward at the moment. Um, like how long has that been? Cooking, living, as a, as a kind of idea that you kind of, and you get on with your work, doctor, and you come back to it and, and let it grow and develop. You sort of inspect it and prod it and push it for Nehemiah at least four or five months until he can't hide it. I, I challenge myself. I'm feeling, as I've, I've sat in this in the last few days in particular, I'm reviewing my life. To what extent do I feel that passionate about something of the Lord that you can just tell by looking at me? You say, oh, it's Tim, you too, yeah. Good, but there's something, there's something <coughs> gnawing him, there's something bugging him, there's something that is gripping him. It kind of, it, it just dominates your waking thoughts. It, it becomes your kind of default daydream in a moment or two of idleness. You'll go back to this and ponder it and think, wrestle with it, tease over it. Do you? Do you have stuff like that? Is it a, maybe it's a personal project? So for you, yourself, maybe it, it could be within your house or in your, within your relationships. Could be within work. Perhaps you, you have, you're in a position of responsibility now where you, you, could, you could affect a way in which a team works. You can begin to shift the culture of your place of work. Maybe it is that you're, you're starting up a new company, project. Maybe you're thinking about going into a new sector of the economy, the workplace. Is it, is, it, is it living in you such that it impacts you, such that others can't fail to notice? What are you waiting on, praying for? Because in the providence of God, don't forget Artaxerxes is a Persian king. He's not a king of Israel. But in the providence of God, sooner or later, someone will ask this second question. The first one was, what's bugging you? What's wrong? Why is your face so downcast? And the second one is in verse 4. The king said to me, what is it you want? This is a, this is a kind of foreign king. This is a king who formerly, and I'll, I'll explain why in a little, little while, formerly has not been on Israel's side. In fact, I'll tell you now, he, he, uh, as we see referenced in Ezra, he actually sent a decree to stop the work on the temple. He's, he's not, it would appear, in favour of the God of Israel and his people. And yet he says to Nehemiah, on the basis of this thing that's gripping him, what do you want? And then I prayed to God, verse 4. Actually, that's a little refrain all the way through the book of Nehemiah. Constantly, Nehemiah is, and then I prayed to God, or he doesn't even sort of tell us that's what he's doing. He just breaks off and says, oh, sovereign Lord. It's in, uh, oh, I've not put down the references. Uh, it's in, from memory, chapter 4, chapter 5, I think in chapter 9. There's four references in chapter 13 alone. Constantly, he's, he's turning to God. He's in dialogue with God. This, this thing is not his own. He's, he's constantly lifting it to God for, for review for shaping, for, for inspiration. 
What is it that you want? Then I prayed to God, and this is what he says. Verse 5. I answered the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. There's the vision. Let me go to Jerusalem. Do you notice he doesn't actually mention Jerusalem? He says, let, send me, let him send me, if I found favour with the king, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. That's what's been cooking away on these months and months and months. Lord, give me favour back in November. And now, with this opportunity, what is it you want? I want to see the city restored. I want to play my part in rebuilding it. There's the vision expressed. It's been incubated for months. And now he expresses it. There's just a little bit on the detail here, which is indicative of the fact that this has been living in Nehemiah. Is this, is this the same kind of detailed thinking and agonising that you go through with your goals, your visions, your dreams? It's the language. Why, why didn't he say to this Persian king, um, oh, can I go back to Jerusalem? I want to go back to Jerusalem. He doesn't mention the city by name. I wonder if it's because, just, just back up to the end of verse 2, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah tells us, he says, I was very much afraid. Uh, you can just scribble it down as a reference if you want. But uh, in Ezra chapter 4, it's recorded there that uh, some of the govern- neighbouring governors, as Ezra gets going with the temple, some of the neighbouring governors are uh, kind of a little bit jealous of uh, Jerusalem having been sacked and kind of you know, off, the, off the market, as it were. If it's being restored to a key city and a key centre will um, you know, disrupt their power. And so they go and send a kind of, they basically sort of gossip to the king and they say, look, um, they actually fabricate this thing that, that uh, Jerusalem's just out to get its own, just you know, to, to, to build its own nest, feather its own nest. And it will basically suck all the taxes out of the neighbouring people for its own good, which will not benefit the king. And the king goes, oh yeah, good point. And so in Ezra chapter four, he writes this letter this decree to the people who are building, to the Jews who are building in, uh, in Jerusalem. And he says, I command you to stop by force. And Ezra chapter 4, verse 23 says, and so the building, the building ceased in Jerusalem until the time of Darius. There was a period of time when there was complete inactivity. Nehemiah would have been aware of that. So when he goes to the king, and the king says, well, what is it that you want? Well, what Nehemiah wants is in direct opposition to the edict that's been issued by this same king. The king said, no more building. I don't want Jerusalem being built again. I don't want this vision to be realised. That's exactly what's been eating Nehemiah's heart. I was afraid. Too right, he was afraid. Here he is in a, a, a captivity. He's in captivity. He's a, he's a um, you know, subject of a foreign power. And here is the head of this power who's issued an edict saying, your city cannot be rebuilt. And that's the one thing that Nehemiah wants. What is it you want? I was afraid. And yet, this thing, this thing that burns in him, this, this vision, he has to overcome his fear. He's got to press through. And so he says. Actually, um, it's uh, against the detail. He's thought about this. How will I say this to the king? 
The reason why he doesn't say Jerusalem is because that would probably trigger the memory. So what he does is he says, let, let me go to the, the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried. And the commentators tell us that in Persia, the culture was to honour the dead. People of Israel paid slightly more focus and attention to those who were living. But in Persia, there was a real culture around honouring the dead. So when he says, let me go to, oh, that city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, he's basically speaking the cultural language of the king. He's thought about this. How, how will I enable the vision that burns in me to be best heard and received by someone who's potentially going to be wobbly about it? I'll, I'll speak in his language. He's thought about this. He's dreamed about it. So once he sees that he's found favour with the king, uh, it pleased the king, verse 6, to send me. So I said, verse 7, if it pleases the king, can I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? In other words, those very fortresses, those very strongholds that had caused the shutting down of the work on the temple in a previous era, I need your authority, king, to shut them down so that I can have safe passage to Jerusalem, so that I I have your permission to do this work. And he thought about it even further. Look, verse 8. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park? See, he knows that he needs... What am I going to need to rebuild the walls? That's he thought about. Rebuild. Unless you see it before you see it. He's seen it. What do I need? Well, I need a structure. I need a framework. So the walls will need a sort of timber frame, and then we can build up the stone around it. Where am I going to get the wood from? Well, from the woods. Well, who owns the woods? Oh, this guy Asaph. He's found out about Asaph. So I need a letter to Asaph so I can plunder his forest, get the wood that I need to rebuild. He's thought about the detail. In those months, he's been incubating. As if in his free time, he's aging. What will I need? Who will I need to speak to? What do I, how do I say it to the king in a way that he'll hear it? And that's behind all this. Because we discover in the verse 9 that not only does he get those letters, not only does he get favour from Asaph, But the king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. He's found favour with the king. What do I think about? What do I think about with such kind of detail and nuance that it it lives in me? Little, Little confession. I think about a trivial, relatively trivial thing quite a lot. I've got, a, I've got a goal. Let me show you, let, I'll show you a little goal, a little vision of mine. It's to get to the top of this. <coughs> my, my hobby, I love climbing, mountaineering. And this is called the Dom de Gion. It stands in the, in the shadow, that's Mont Blanc there. So you can get to the top of it and, and, uh, and you can see Mont Blanc. And uh, it's, quite a sort of, it's quite a tricky sort of scramble to climb up to here. That's called the, the, um, the uh, uh, what's that called? The, the Salle Manger, just there, which is a kind of flat bit. And uh, it's like a sort of, you can bivy there, you can kind of have a bit of break. And then it's, there's a really tricky traverse just along there. And then you climb up that wall all the way to the top, several pitches. And I've loved, I, I've pictured the selfie on the top. Because it's on the French-Italian border. Um, it, the, the, the actual summit, you can see various pictures of it on YouTube, has got a Madonna, uh, uh, you know, Mary. Um, and I've just pictured a selfie of me and the Madonna. Just like that. <laughs> Shameless, I know. But I confess, I have. I've looked at 
countless YouTube clips that people have films that people have made. So I'm pretty familiar with the whole route. I, can, I know the hard bits. I know the challenging bits. And I've begun to think, okay, I can see I'll need that bit of gear and that bit of gear and that gear. Because it's the top of the climb is 4,000 metres, so a fair amount of altitude. So you don't want to carry any excess weight. I thought about stripping weight to the, to the nearest ounce from my rucksack. I don't want to carry any gear that I don't need, but I, I need to carry gear that I do need. Should I take two ropes or one? Because two ropes, extra weight, but then there's six successive abseils to get off, off the route. You just abseil down the other side. And so if you had two ropes, you could do it in three abseils, but one rope, you'd be six. I thought about these things. Let's <laughs> 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 see what you have. <laughs> It's okay, it's a sort of little daydream, and, and one day I'll do it. It's one of the incentives, why that's one of the reasons why I like to try and keep as fit as I can in my dotage, so that I can actually do that kind of climb. But here's, here's where I feel quite convicted, and, and where it's in a sense of confession. Do I spend as much time thinking about the things of God? About, about the things that, in a sense, I'm, I'm called, and you'd expect me to do as a minister in this place, to release the life of God into others as much as I do sometimes. Think about the Don de Gion, which is French for the giant tooth. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a little strapline for, for kind of what I think I'm about. It's, it's to enable people to tune into the harmony of heaven so that they can dance on earth. Kind of, I, I kind of worked it with a, a life coach a little while back. And, and so, I kind of, it, what, am I, what am I doing? Why am I here? I'm, I'm trying to, to tune into heaven and help others to tune into heaven so that they can dance to its tune on earth. Live heaven on earth. In answer to the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in a way that liberates. It's one of the reasons, another confession here, why I quite like watching Strictly. That is quite a confession. Have I gone too far now? <laughs> But I, I just love you get these sort of relative amateurs and they, they get liberated over the weeks. They become, don't they? They stop being sort of clunky people and they, they go with music and their bodies dance and become, sort of become alive and tuned in with their partner. I love that. <laughs> it's a little metaphor for me of what I'm trying to do. Tune in to then become... God's dancing on earth. But do I spend as much time thinking about that, agonising about that, uh, thinking through all the details as I do climbing a lump of rock in France? What about you? What about you? What's sitting there in the, in, in the gut? It, it could be... Uh, when one is something, it's harmless activity... Uh, sporting stuff and, and uh, you know a, a, a goal to get fit or to uh, that kind of thing. Those are, those are good things. But is there is there also room capacity for you to be incubating something like this vision that's gnawing away at Nehemiah that you'll confront powers and when they say what is it you want and you feel that fear and yet you'll say it anyway. You'll state it anyway. You'll begin to give words, credence, space to what it is that you really want to see God do in and through you. Unless you see it before you see it. 
You'll never see it. You see, in overcoming the fear to state this to Artaxerxes, when he's invited it, what is it that you want? Maybe Nehemiah is beginning to equip himself, to gird himself, to, to protect this vision when, verse 10, chapter 2, he confronts Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official. I say the because there were lots of Horonites at the time and lots of Ammonites at the time, but for some reason Sambalit and Tobiah are named and they're named as the Horonite and the Ammonite. So in the words of my student son, um, they're Beanocks. <laughs> I didn't know what a Beanock was, but he had to explain to me and uh, those of you who have really been, you kind of know, a Beanock. A Beanock apparently is a big name on campus. And, and these guys are Beanocks. They kind of throw their weight around a bit. They, they uh, swagger. They have authority. And they're hearing about um, this Nehemiah guy who reckons he's coming to town and being a bit of a noise. And so we'll, we'll kind of sort him out. I won't say any more about Sambalat and Tobiah, but if you read through Nehemiah, their names crop up time and time again. Uh, and when we think about when a vision is, is opposed and tested, uh, no doubt they will be there lurking one to others too. And that would be true for anything that we, we long for in the things of God. We want to see God work in and through us. It, sooner or later there'll be a Sambalat or there'll be a Tobiah to, to, to push against it. Final thing on allowing a vision to, to, to sort of be birthed and then to be incubated, to wait. Maybe it's months. Maybe it's longer than that. To allow us to, to see what we can't yet see, so that ultimately we can see it. And all of this, all of this seeing so that we can see within the context of God I've, I, and His Spirit. I've, I've mentioned that Nehemiah, time and time again, he breaks off and he prays, Sovereign Lord. Then I prayed, Sovereign Lord. He's constantly in tune with heaven, tuning himself in, refining this vision. And the strategy, what do I need to do next? How are we going to build the wall and protect ourselves from the opposition? How are we going to progress this in the most efficient way possible? Your vision, his vision. And it's as, we, as, we, as we kind of hoist the sail of what we understand the call on our lives to be and allow the wind of the Spirit to fill it. It's as, it's as the Spirit takes what is growing in us and, and blows it way beyond anything we could have come up with, anything we could have produced. It's only the things of the Spirit that are ultimately, and the things of God that are ultimately going to last. Now, let, let me give that an example from this time, um, and uh, uh, from one of, the, one of the prophets of the time. There were a number of prophets that prophesied in this, this period of unique activity, and one of them was Haggai. If you want to turn, it's page 897 in the Green Bibles. But the prophet Haggai. And he, he prophesied around about 520, so um, more Ezra's time than Nehemiah. So more the rebuilding of the temple than rebuilding of the walls. But this is what God says through the prophet Haggai. So the context is that Ezra is dreaming about rebuilding the temple and Shortly, Nehemiah is dreaming about rebuilding the walls. And the prophet speaks into this context. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. 
this story, chapter 2, verse 6, top of page 897. In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house, i.e. the temple, with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And note this, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace declares the Lord Almighty. The reference to the house is God's house, the temple. Verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And by that he's referring to the original temple, Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians when they over, overran Judah and Jerusalem. But there were people, the, the exile, I used to think of the exile for years and you know, centuries and centuries. It wasn't, it was, I think it was in, in total, it was 58 years that the people were in captivity. It was 50 years after they were overrun that the first exiles came back. There were men and women in the first people who came back who were young enough to, well, when they came back, they were old people, but they were, they were young when they were taken, so they remember the temple in all its glory. They remember Solomon's temple. They remember it, how glorious it was. If you read the account in, in Scripture of just how majestic it was, these huge columns, and God's presence comes in and fills the temple. It is the most splendid, the most glorious. And here's Haggai saying to these guys as they look to rebuild the temple out of the ruins of Solomon's temple, the... the um, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Wow. It's going to be even greater than Solomon's temple. That's an incentive to build, isn't it? Wow, this drink, God's on our side. Ezra and the guys, come on, let's get going. Let's build this temple because God has prophesied it's going to be even more glorious than Solomon's. I don't want to sort of spoil the stuff if you're reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, but there's just a kind of an oblique reference. That actually, when they finish, they complete the temple, Ezra. They complete the rebuilding of the temple, and they build it. And you would imagine, with buoyed by Haggai's prophecy, you'd imagine they'd go, yes! And they build it, and they sort of, you know, cut the ribbon, and champagne, and, and, and there's, this, there's this different sense of, They kind of know it, it doesn't quite cut it, it isn't quite doing it. it it's, there's this huge sense of anticlimax. The reality is, if we're honest, the temple isn't as great as it was. So what do we make of Haggai's prophecy? Maybe he got that wrong. Maybe he just had a bit of an off day. Or maybe, maybe, what Haggai is doing here is prophesying Rather like a prophecy like a sort of skimming stone. You know when you play ducks and drakes and you skip? He's, he's sending this prophecy and it's going to skim over Ezra and it's going to skim over Nehemiah and it's going to land splosh into the New Testament. Into a man that you and I all know about who stood in this rebuilt temple. He would have known about Haggai just as everyone else. This is 400 years after Nehemiah. Or 50 years maybe after Nehemiah. By the way, Nehemiah is one of the last, historically, I know he's sort of in the middle of the Old Testament bit, but historically, he's the kind of last, this is the last act of what we know as the Old Testament period. There's then 400 years of silence. When, when people 
hot off Haggai's prophecy of this, this current house is going to be even greater than the last one. And yet that isn't quite happened. So we kind of wait, something's going to happen. And they're getting hungry and desperate and, and, and thirsty for the things of God. And Jesus stands in the temple, in the temple that is meant to be greater than Solomon's. And he says, anyone thirsty for God? Anyone hungry for God? Come to me. Come to me. You see what? Jesus got really. Who do you think he is? We're waiting for the, 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 the present house, this present glory to, you know, maybe it just takes time for us to get used to the building. And then once we got used to the building, it really will feel like greater than Solomon's temple. And Jesus says to that, come to me. You hungry? You thirsty? I get a bit angry, some of these um, kind of protectors of, you know, of the heritage. And so they say, give us a sign that you're who you really say you are. He says, okay. You knocked this temple to... Whoa, wait a minute. Did you touch... Did you say the T word there? Are you not aware how sensitive this is? This, this, this... Oh, we had prophecies around this second temple. And Jesus says, yeah, knock it down. And I'll knock it down. Like, do what the Babylonians did. Can you hear what he's saying? This is so offensive. And I'll rebuild it in three days. And John... He records this, kind of helps us out. He says, by this he meant his body. He's, kind of, he, he's locating the whole of God's presence, the whole of God's beauty, the whole of God's splendor, the whole of God's power, the whole of God's shalom. What did Haggai prophesy? And in this place I will grant peace. God's peace. Connectedness. Husbands and wives. Parents and children. Neighbourhoods. Communities. Bosses and workers. Jews and Gentiles. There will be connectedness, peace, joy in this person, not in a place. Now, I say all this in the context of our tiny little building project. Well, it's really, I've got a meeting on Wednesday with, uh, and we'll sit around. Um, Charles Lunnan and Tim Burwood are kind of complete heroes who have just given so much time to the, all the detail and the, and the kind of dreaming in micro detail. And we'll be there with the stone masons and, and, and I don't know, all these, all these beam-ops in the building world. <laughs> I'll sit there and it will just go over my head. I'll be amazed. I'll get lost in all the sort of detail of that wire and this thing and that measurement and so on. And that is so crucial and so important. And yet, it isn't it. And if we, if we look, when we go back from here, if we go back into this amazing building with the lights and the floor and the entrance and the kitchen and the loos. <laughs> and if we think that's it, I mean, let's allow ourselves a little bit of initial excitement. But, but there will come a time when the novelty will wear off. And we'll, you know, it'll just be also these. And there'll be people who join us from September, October onwards who won't know what the former building was like. And we'll say, you know, the present glory is far greater than the last one. I told you. And they're not wrong. And in a sense, they're right. It's, it's not about people coming into the building and going, wow. It's about people coming into the building and meeting Jesus and going, wow. And meeting us and going, wow. As we offer to befriend them and listen to them and pray for them. And not even say, come to us. Because I think some of them will out of curiosity and intrigue. That's why the Fair on the Green is so significant this year. Because we can point to the building. Say, hey, it's, we're just about finishing this work here. Come and have a look. But it's also as we go out. So we don't meet in secret. I can't wait for Christmas. 
Because for the first time ever, we're going to have this amazing Christmas tree, like we always do, but instead of building it in, putting it in the thing with all the lights and the lovely things, we've got our Christmas tree, and it's hidden. No one sees it apart from us who come in. But we're going to put it, boom, in reception, right by the glass door, right where everyone can see. That's a symbol of light in the darkness. We're going to put invites on it and chocolates for the kids. And I'm, I'm riffing a bit now, but hey, I'm beginning to think about Unless you see it before you see it, you'll never see it. I'm beginning to see it. Are you seeing it too? That, that, the new bricks and mortar, fantastic, but that's not it. When Haggai prophesied to those people, they, they kind of missed it. They thought, oh, it's in the building. And Haggai actually was looking beyond Ezra, beyond Nehemiah, right over the intertestamental period, the intertestamental period to Jesus himself. That's what he meant. The ultimate fulfilment, the greater glory. When we hoist the sail of, of our vision and, and, and allow it by prayer, Nehemiah constantly praying, and we're constantly talking, oh sovereign Lord, oh sovereign Lord, amid the fear, and as this thing burns in me, as I hoist the sail and position the sail to catch the wind of the Spirit, I'll, I'll skim over what current realities may exist into the ultimate reality of Christ and his spirit fulfilling vision to his praise and glory. Let's pause for a moment. more, I think, of an entrepreneurial um, sort of gene in your, in, your, in your being than there, is, there was in, in my generation. I was, I was, our generation were kind of trained much more sort of formally, really, for, for much more sort of one or two dimensional sort of career paths. And I don't think that's nearly so true for, for you guys. Uh, and I think you respond to that. And I think you, now talking about those of you I, that I know here, I think you, you respond to that. Barney's as an example, he's not the only example. I think there are others of you who I, I, I sense as I've been speaking this evening, what all I've done is to point a light on something that's already been going on in, in a number of your hearts and minds. And you, you can't give too much expression to it, maybe you're you're in Kislev rather than Nissan in terms of the time scale. It's it's still quite embryonic. But whereas we pray for people who are, who are actually involved in um, either sort of healthcare professions or in tech. What I'd love to do now, I'd love just to give some time to pray for those who, and there's, it doesn't matter in what sphere, but there is this, this, this beginning, even if it's just a tiny little flicker of a flame, of a desire to make a difference for God, to be a difference for God. 
wherever he places you, in whatever you're doing, in the gifts and abilities he's, he's given. And if that's you, if there's something of a Nehemiah in you, it could be in the relational sphere, it could be the work sphere, it could be just in, 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 you know, in, in, a, in a hobby or a sideline, but you kind of sense God is, is beginning to stir. Again, would you, would you mind just raising your hand? I'm not going to hold you to anything, but if, if there's stuff stirring in you, amazing, amazing. So why don't, why don't we just, if you, let's stand, keep, uh, stand with your hands up. <laughs> Again, can we, can we gather, this is going to need pretty much all of us, so if you haven't got your hand up, can you gather around, you're, you're part of this now, just gather around, around those who have, there are some people who are two hands next to each other, so we'll need to sort of cluster around, let's move, shake the chairs if we need to.